The scripture reading today is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8, and it's actually the first three verses, and it can be found on page 956 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Miles. Pray with me. Father, we come before you today, and we thank you and praise you for new beginnings. Father, you know that Mari and I often laugh that she loves new beginnings, and I have a hard time getting started. Father, I praise you that you know each one of us personally and intimately, that you know uh, what our personalities are like, and Father, that you care about our personalities because you made us with them. We even know that you have described yourself and your character to us. Father, we praise you uh, for bringing the college students home again to us. Father, we praise you for the students from Babson and Wellesley and Boston University and Boston College and beyond. Father, we pray that as you draw students um, into this city and into the churches of this city, that while they're here, um, Father, they would find not only places where they can worship you, but Father, I pray that we would open up our homes and our hearts to them. Father, we pray this as we look at their faces because even this afternoon we miss the faces of our own college students, whether they are gone to school in New Jersey or in Tennessee, in Colorado or California. Father, you know the students that we have said goodbye to, and you know how you are pursuing them even now. Father, we pray that you would make places for them both to worship and to be known. Father, to know the love of Christ incarnate in other human beings who welcome them into their hearts and their homes. Father, we praise you that you know us. Father, you know those of us who are struggling with sickness, the news that we didn't want to hear that we have heard in the last few weeks. Father, you know those of us who have struggled all summer long with anxiety, with fear. Father, you know those of us who have struggled and who have seen victory, and you know what we long for for the future. Father, we come before you not as disembodied women and men who are supposed to check our heads and our lives at the door, but Father, we come before you as women and men made in your image who long to figure out where we are going to college next year and what job will replace the ones we just lost and how you will meet us in our desire to be loved and to be known. Father, we come to you because you are the one who told us to. 
You are the one who said that we ought to pray and never give up hope. You are the one who has given visions of the future and of a time when everything, when all pain and suffering and crying will be wiped away. Father, you are the one who has told us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Father, some of us are just coming into a consciousness of what it means to be a Christian in the communities where you have placed us, whether we are in school or whether you have made it known to us that in these last days, you have called us to worship you. You have called us to place our hope in you. Father, you know how we are both discouraged and disappointed, how we are enthralled with joy and with optimism. Father, how we wonder with what we just sang. Our worth defined the cross and our unworthiness to come before you. Father, I thank you so much for this gathered group of women and men, your people, your sheep, your inheritance. Father, I ask now that you would do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine as we come before your word that you would make us more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, you have said that your responsibility is to show us Christ in all of his glory. And as we gaze upon him, as we contemplate you, Jesus, as we bow our heads and pray to you, that we, women and men, are transformed. Please do more than we can even imagine. Father, we know our need in part, but you know it in full. And so we pray that you would fully meet us, body and soul. Would you meet us and would you remind us of your truth that you have loved us with a never-ending love and that you have filled us with such hope. Father, we thank you in advance to what you're going to do. We ask that you would give us attention to pay to your word now. And we praise you for calling us into your presence. Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's great being back with you. I've been gone for the month of August. Not the whole month. I was here uh, over half of it. But for two Sundays, Mita and I traveled and we got to see our grandson. For those of you who are grandparents, there are a few of us in this room, right? It's good to see your faces. Uh, you know how hard it is to be away from those grandkids. And already, Mita and I are longing to be there, but we are thrilled to be with you. This is where we want to be. We are looking for the last time this summer at the book of 1 Corinthians. Miles read for us the eight verses of chapter 8 that we're going to look at, and then we're going to step away from that for the fall, and we're going to look at the book of Ezekiel, and we're going to consider the character of our God as he is present with us and as he strengthens us. But before we do, Nathan and I thought that it might be wise if we have one word of review in the book of Corinthians, because for many of you, you've been out a lot this summer, right? And sometimes some of the sermons on book, the book of Corinthians have felt like one-offs. 
But there really is a reason for us to review these first seven chapters. And then I want to give you one final view of this rebuke that the Apostle Paul gives the Corinthians. All right, so the two things that we're going to do today in these few minutes, we're going to look at a review of the book of 1 Corinthians that we've seen thus far so that you and I might be excited about what's coming next spring, next summer rather. But we're going to end with one rebuke that the Apostle Paul gives the Corinthians, and we're going to see if you and I might learn from it, if we might benefit from it, all right? So the book of Corinthians is before us. Miles reminded us that that can be found on page 956 of those blue pew Bibles that are in your pews. If you want to take this Bible college students and take it home with you, you're welcome to them. Um, But turn to it, if you will. The Corinthians have used their understanding that we have seen thus far as a means of personal significance of personal rights, of personal freedoms, of personal protection, and of personal identity. The Corinthians have been focused on themselves, as we have seen thus far. In fact, Corinthian Christianity, you might remember, is being consumed with one's self. It's this excessive interest in an administration of one's own self and combining Christianity with that concern. That's what we've seen in the book of Corinthians so far. Do you remember in chapters 1 through 4 how we saw that the Corinthians valued wisdom and they valued speech? Sophia and Logos, they valued rhetoric and eloquence, right? And they began to divide themselves up. They said, I'm a follower of so-and-so, but I'm a follower of so-and-so. And suddenly divisions happened in the church. Judgments were made against the Apostle Paul. You are not apostolic. You don't have authority. You can't speak into our lives. Maybe the Apostle Paul was the first person ever to be canceled. Who knows? But that canceling led to arrogance on behalf of the Christians in Corinth. They were called out for, remember the words, being puffed up, being inflated in their ego, being filled with pride. In chapter 5, we were reminded that that pride and that arrogance led to the exception And I mean the exception, not the exception accepting, but bringing in, accepting among them of sexual immorality that was even frowned upon and even brought shame in a secular context. But their arrogance allowed them to accept such sexual immorality because they believed themselves to be spiritual and that their bodies did not matter. Verse or chapter 6, we learned that these Corinthians began to focus on what they could get in this life for themselves here and now. Twisting what they knew, the knowledge that they knew, like all things are lawful for me, to the end of personal freedom, of experience. Corinthian Christianity is a focus on one's self in a way that distorts the message of the gospel. The Apostle Paul has gone after the Christians with great, the Corinthian Christians, with great force. We've seen him use irony. We've seen him use sarcasm. We have seen him use really difficult language. 
Remember, we argued that one reason that Corinth was in between Athens to its east and Rome to its west, and all of these people would travel through. So if the gospel went forward from this place, it needed to go forward in purity. But the apostle Paul made it clear that he cared for the people in the pews, as it were. I don't think there were pews in these churches. Don't get me wrong. There certainly weren't the boxes that you're sitting in. We brought up those. But the Apostle Paul cared for the people, and he wanted them to know the truth of Christianity. But Corinthian Christianity was overwhelmed by self and by self-identity. I want to ask you, as we think of this review of Corinthians up to this point, when or around what issues are you and I most tempted to practice Corinthian Christianity? The kind of Christianity that is focused on ourselves. Let me ask one more time. When or around what issues are you and I most tempted to practice Corinthian-style Christianity? Christianity that is focused on ourselves. As I considered that question this week, the answers that came to my heart were these, and I wonder if any of them resonate with you. My sense of self is heightened when I'm filled with fear. My sense of self is heightened when I am hurt. My sense of self is heightened when I am grasping for control or when I'm focusing on the here and now, not on the day when Jesus will return. But it's not just in those areas where this resonated with my own heart this week. It's also when in our socioeconomic status, we find ourselves to be so satisfied with our lives that we search and we search for more. What issues cause you to think of self with regard to Christianity, like the Corinthians? It seems to me that whenever my personal liberty is at stake, I begin to argue pretty vehemently for my rights. The Apostle Paul has set up for us an understanding of Christianity as the Corinthians understood it, and he has not left one stone unturned, has he? <laughs> it's been a pretty tough study of the book of Corinthians. It's been a tough look at the various ways in the Corinthians have twisted Christianity. But before we leave it, there is one last rebuke that we hear the Apostle Paul give the Corinthians. And this is in these three verses that we're looking at. It's just one last rebuke that I want us to hear. It is in this context of something that the Corinthians had written them about. Look at verse 1, if you will, with me. And we see the same language that chapter 7 started out with, now concerning and then a topic, right? So chapter 7 started off with the same words, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then there was a quotation, right? 
Well, chapter 8 starts out much the same way. He says, now concerning food offered to idols. And you're like, Bradley, if there's anything in the book of 1 Corinthians that I shouldn't have to worry about, it's food offered to idols. When's the last time you all went to a temple sacrifice you celebrated and you ate food offered to idols? The weirdest thing I've thought about about meat lately is that Mac Barnes will go to the meat lab at his university and get half-priced meat. And that, I'm worried about that. I don't know if that bothers you, but that, that bothers me. But we do not understand going to festivals and temples and, and being invited to feast at a service where meat is sacrificed to idols. And you think, this is obviously something I do not need to listen to. And I want to say, stop. Hard stop. These next three verses are exactly what we need to listen to and exactly what we need to hold on to until we return to them next summer. And this is the statement that I want you to hear. Are you listening? This is the rebuke that the Apostle Paul gives. I want you to hear it because we need it. The Christian ethic, how we behave, how we live, and how we make choices is not rooted in knowledge, but is rooted in love. I want to say that clearly one more time so we're on the same page. This is the rebuke that Paul is giving to the Corinthian Christians. I'm going to show you how, all right? The Christian ethic meaning how we as Christians behave, how we live, how we make choices, it isn't rooted in knowledge, but it's rooted in love. And if you want to put a verb ending to that, it is rooted in loving. Let me show you what he says. The Apostle Paul is about to answer one of the questions that they raised. Hey, are we allowed to eat in these temples or are we not allowed to eat in them? Listen, I'm saving that. Nathan and I are going to save that until next summer because chapters 8, chapters 9, and chapters 10 all have to deal with these issues. And we're not even going to get the answer to Paul's statement until chapter 10. That's too much, even for us, to try to cover three chapters at once. But what I want you to see is how the Apostle Paul addresses the way the Corinthians are thinking. Look at what he says in verse 1. Now we know that, and then in parentheses, or in quotations rather, it says, all of us possess knowledge. In other words, the Corinthians has wrote to the Apostle Paul, and he goes, look, all of us possess knowledge, is what the Corinthians says. We have knowledge. This word knowledge, right along with the word of wisdom and the word of speech or rhetoric, these are in words in the community of Corinth. These are words that the Corinthians value. Wisdom, knowledge, rhetoric, eloquence. This is what the Corinthians value. They're saying to Paul, look, we all know, and if you were to read the next few verses, you would see that they're going to argue, hey, look, we know that idols are nothing. And so that when we go to these feasts and we eat in the temples, we know that we're not worshiping God because God is one. But the Apostle Paul stops and he says, before we even enter into this argument, I want you to think about something. And the first of three things that he says to think about is this. In verse 1, this type of knowledge that you're talking about, the knowledge that the Corinthians says, look, we possess knowledge. We have knowledge. So we know that our actions are going to be right. 
He says, of this knowledge of yours, Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Do you see where it says that in verse 1? Knowledge, this focus on self and what we possess, driving our behavior. The Corinthians are going to be arguing about this specific behavior. This idea that Christian behavior is rooted in what we know, the Apostle Paul says knowledge like that puffs us up, makes us prideful, makes us arrogant, inflates us, as it were, like a balloon. Right? But the Apostle Paul says, you think that knowledge builds you up, but knowledge puffs you up. Love builds us up. Now look, the Apostle Paul does not have a squishy understanding of what love means. This is not a Forrest Gump moment where all of us look at each other and we go, I'm a smart man, I know what love is, right? The Apostle Paul is very clear of what love is. Love is that acting toward one another that drives and propels and, and pushes and encourages one another to Christ-likeness, to being like Jesus. As Mita prayed for, the desire and the deep desire to obey God and glorify Him with our lives. The Apostle Paul says that when we love one another, we build each other up. The second thing that he says is he says in verse 2 that when we claim that we have perfect knowledge about something, it is exactly that claim that betrays the fact that we really don't know. Verse 2 says this, if anyone imagines that he knows something, and again, it's hard for us to understand this just on its face, but this idea of knowing is perfect knowing is what the Apostle Paul says here very specifically. If anyone imagines that he knows something perfectly, just claiming that you know something perfectly is proof enough that you don't know it the way you ought to yet. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying right here. He's saying that you don't know the knowledge in the way that it should have shaped your understanding in the way that it should have shaped their knowing of who God is, right? Claiming perfect knowledge is proof that you don't know something well yet. You don't know something the way you ought to know it. Mita and I were driving back, and we listened to an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience. Do you guys know this? Now, before you think that I'm cool, I, I'm not cool enough to have ever listened to Joe Rogan experience on my own. All of these things that make me culturally relevant are pushed to me through my children, all right? And so Ben gave us this one, and we had to figure out how to listen to it on Spotify because neither Meter and I have Spotify. So we, we finally figured it out. You can tell us later. We did figure it out as grandparents. But we listened to this thing, and it was a great episode, actually. I would encourage you to listen to it. There was this PhD, this philosophy of science guy, Stephen Meyer, who was on it, and he was talking about intelligent design. And, and listen, I'm not pushing intelligent design at this point. It, you can listen to it and draw your conclusions that you want to draw. But what was impressive to me and Mita as we listened to this, this, this guy, Stephen Meyer, who was on it, he was very humble every time Joe Rogan challenged him and said, yeah, but don't you think there's a possibility that we might discover something in the future that refutes what you're saying? And time after time, this man who is a Christian in science and who is arguing for intelligent design in spaces where thought and logic 
and wisdom and knowledge matter. Time and time again, he humbly confessed, of course, our human knowledge could be incomplete. Of course, we could find other things that might refute this. But all of the knowledge we have thus far points in this direction, as he was arguing. The humility with which he spoke was so refreshing. And again, I'm not necessarily arguing for what he is arguing for. I don't know if I'm smart enough to do that. But what I want to point out to you is the humility of not claiming to know something perfectly because the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, when you claim to possess knowledge, you have it perfectly. It's proof that you don't know, you don't understand, you haven't been shaped by the very thing that you were supposed to know. Well, the last thing that he says is in verse 3. This is where we land the plane. This is the end of it. He has this second but statement. Do you see the first one he says is this? This knowledge, he says in verse 2, puffs up, or in verse 1, puffs up, but love builds up. And then he has another one. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to, but, and this is the last phrase we're going to look at, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could get out of 1 Corinthians uh, without the difficulty with which we've been preaching 1 Corinthians the whole time? Ha, we can't do it. One hard thing in 1 Corinthians. Did you guys know that there are over 5,700 manuscript copies of parts of the, Old of the New Testament? Did you know that? 5,700, that's a lot. Did you know that within that 5,700, scholarship is in agreement that over 99% of all of those manuscripts point to consistency in scriptural representation. That there are a few places where those, those, those manuscripts aren't saying exactly the same thing in their original language. Well, this is one where there's a challenge and to understand the weight of what the Apostle Paul is saying, I think it's good for us to look at it real quick. The first option of what that verse 3 means is simply what it says, that loving as a human being who responds in love first to God, right? We love God first and then we love others. As a human being who's loving God, that is a result of being known by God. That's what it says point blank. And a lot of scholars go, that's what Paul says because it's consistent with Paul everywhere else. And you go, that's true. But as one commentator wrote... That is true, but I'm not sure that that's what this means here because the Apostle Paul is clearly talking about how we love one another, right? And so the second option is this, that what that phrase means at the end, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God, is that our loving and our loving of God and others is a result of our truly knowing that we are known by him. We would know that we are known by him, and therefore that right knowledge results in love. But you see that that has to add a concept to what is said. There are manuscript documents that actually read much simpler than this, and they simply say this. If anyone loves, this one knows. If anyone loves, this one knows. One of the commentators that has been guiding me 
in all of this study of Corinthians says, if that isn't what the original manuscript says, it is exactly what Paul is trying to teach. That we know we know rightly when we love. The Apostle Paul is rebuking the Corinthians and he's saying the Christian ethic, how we behave and live and make choices, isn't first rooted in knowledge, it's rooted in love. You want to know an Old Testament example that makes a lot of sense of this? When God introduces the Ten Commandments to the people, what does he say to them? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I rescued you. I chose you. I loved you over every other nation. Now obey. Christian ethic rooted in love. This is a big deal. I want to end with asking you this question. Where are you and I tempted by spiritual knowledge? Where are you and I tempted by something we know spiritually to emphasize personal freedom, personal authority, personal liberty over love of others? Where might that be? Now again, unless you're going to temples and having feasts that I don't know you're having and eating meat sacrificed to idols, I don't think that's your answer or mine. But we need to think about that. Try this on for size. Listen, a right understanding of enjoying the creation that God has given us is that all the gifts in this world are from God and they're good gifts. We're free to pursue the pleasures of this world that are afforded to us. That, that, that's good knowledge. We, we, we know that. But we might ask ourselves this question. And we might understand Paul when we ask ourselves this question. How do we spend our leisure, our luxuries, our licenses in love toward others? When do we ask in the way that we live, how will this affect my sisters and my brothers with whom I'm joined? The book of Corinthians is going to unpack this for us next summer. We're going to begin to hear about how they celebrated the Lord's Supper and, and pushed each other away. We're going to hear about the gifts that God gave the church. We're going to hear about this apex of love. We're going to hear about the church being one body. And we're going to hear about the hope of that one body being the resurrection of Jesus. But until then, what I want to be resonating in our minds is that the Christian ethic, how we behave, live, and make choices isn't rooted in knowledge like the Corinthians think, but it's rooted in love, even the way that God deals with us in sending Jesus to save us from our sins. Sisters and brothers, what condition were you in when Jesus died for you and me?
The Apostle Paul makes that very clear. While we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus for us. God has loved us. Let's sit and marinate in that as we wait to come back to 1 Corinthians. Please pray with me as we head to the table.